Welcome to Parenting in the Trenches. I'm Karen Peters, a registered clinical counselor, and I'm a mom. We're getting real about all things family from a mental health perspective. So let's get to it. Uh, Whether you're joining us through video or if you're listening to the audio on the podcast, we welcome you. We're kicking off a series all about adoption. And uh, we're going to dive into the hard stuff and the good stuff. And we are not entering this series um, in a simple way. We've got a pretty complex topic right out of the gate. So I am excited to invite my guest, Rita Sorensen, to the table to talk about adoption from foster care, what matching means, effective matching, that process, what goes into that, both the experience of adoptive families trying to sort that out, but also what happens in the background by agencies that contribute to establishing how a good match or how we believe good matches happen um, and how we go about doing those. And so Rita is the president and CEO of the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption. For more than 30 years, she has worked on behalf of abused, neglected, and vulnerable kids, providing leadership for local, state, and national efforts, working to improve both the juvenile justice system and child welfare systems, while striving to assure the permanent homes for North America's children. She is the CEO and president of Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption, both in the U.S. and in Canada, a national nonprofit public charity. They work to find adoptive families for more than 150,000 children waiting in North America's foster care systems. Under her leadership, the foundation dedicated more than $40.9 million to grants and award-winning programs such as Wendy's Wonderful Kids, which you might be familiar with, Adoption Friendly Workplace, and National Adoption Day, and is building awareness around growing need for foster care adoption. Since 2005, the Wendy's Wonderful Kids program has grown from seven pilot sites to more than 475 sites across the U.S. and Canada. This program's evidence-based model is dedicated to moving those children most at risk of aging out of foster care into permanent families. In 2011, independent research results of the Wendy's Wonderful Kids demonstrated that children referred to that program are up to three times more likely to be adopted. More than 10,000 children have been adopted as a result of Wendy's Wonderful Kids. I could not feel more privileged to have today's conversation with Rita. Rita, thank you so much. It's my joy to have you here today to talk about fostering, adoption, and matching factors. So I'm just wondering if I've got four main questions for you today, but before we begin, because I don't think a lot of people know the Wendy's Wonderful Kids program, would you mind starting with a bit of an overview about why it started and what the work looks like for that program? Absolutely. And thank you for this conversation today. I've been looking forward to it. Um, So the Wendy's Wonderful Kids program is a signature effort of the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption. And the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption is a, a nonprofit public charity in both the United States and Canada that works to dramatically increase the adoptions of children out of North America's foster care systems. So a number of years ago, in fact, back in 2002, 2003, we really began to assess um, where could we be value added in this 
the, the foster care adoption mm-hmm. space. Um, we were doing a lot of uh, good public awareness campaigns at that point, trying to talk about the fact that children are in foster care waiting to be adopted and yeah. that it is one option for families. But um, we were finding that children continued at alarming rates to age out of the foster care system. Yes. So yeah. that was perhaps the space that we could begin to dedicate our resources and time among continuing, in addition to continuing to raise awareness. And so we looked at what were the emerging best practices um, across North America for social workers, caseworkers to really focus on this population of children that are most at risk of aging out of care. And for us, that was children age nine and older, children in sibling groups, children and youth with special needs, and those youth who have been in care for so long, perhaps, that they've given up on themselves and yeah. the notion of family and permanency, and um, they still um, suffer from issues, of course, ongoing issues of grief and loss and, and not wanting to appear disloyal to their biological family. So they resist efforts at permanency as well. Yeah. We found that there were some emerging best practices, but there was nothing at an evidence-based level. So we pulled together this program that um, we called Wendy's Wonderful Kids because one of our largest philanthropic partners at the time, and still is, is the Wendy's system, Wendy's franchisees and suppliers who fundraise for both the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption US and Canada in order to implement programs. So we called it Wendy's Wonderful Kids. They increased their fundraising. We developed this model that said, Really, it's just good social work. Let's let's give grants to organizations, large or small, public or private, who are willing to implement this this model that we're testing that says by hiring a full-time adoption professional with a grant from the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption, the recruiter that we called it, a Wendy's Wonderful Kids recruiter, could carry a smaller caseload of children. So 12 to 15 total, as opposed to the 40 or 50 sometimes that that caseworkers were carrying. And by doing that, they could focus on the child's unique journey through foster care, their background, do a deep dive into the case file and find potential adoptive um, resources that are in that case file from former Mm -hmm. foster families to extended family members, stick with the child, help them understand the value of permanency, work with the potential families that step forward and help them understand the journey that this child has gone through, their unique needs, wishes, and hopes, and then hopefully make these matches work and then stay with them to the point of permanency and frequently post-permanency. So we began a pilot launch in 2004 in seven uh, U.S. sites and in 2006 in Canada and began to test this and see if it would work. And we found very quickly that that adoptions were finalizing, that um, families were coming together. And I think, you know, in all honesty, it's because it works and we took it through a rigorous five-year evaluation and we know at an evidence-based level it works, but it also works because these are the children that no one was focusing on. They were simply calling them unadoptable. They fell through the cracks. They fell through the cracks and, I, you know, professional social workers, even the best of them felt, well, if we can just get them to that 18 or 21 or 23 age and help them get out of the system, then we've done our job. That's right. Yeah. When really permanency is the job. Right. So that's been the, the oh, evolution, crazy. both from identifying a gap, committing yeah. resources, engaging partners and testing it, making sure at an evidence-based level it works, and then continuing to grow it at a profound level. I can only imagine the quality of the experience skyrocketing. If a caseload goes, 
you know, from 40 to 12. Yes. I just can't, I could not fathom the difference. Having been kind of in a, a government system for 20 years and watching social work run its wheels, I I just can't imagine how big of a change that would be. These are humans we're dealing yes. with. You can't exactly. rush these processes and they need to be, we need to be with our kids in the nitty gritty of it so yes. they're not alone figuring out the, yeah, the details. Yeah, incredible. Exactly. Our main topic today is going to be about matching factors, but I did want to ask you something before we dive into that. Sure. Your scope of practice in your career is incredible. Mm -hmm. And I know that you have tapped a lot of different organizations and done a lot of differing work within this realm or under the umbrella of fostering mm -hmm. and adoption and vulnerable kids. I'm increasingly, as an adoptive parent, but also as somebody who supports adoptive parents, I'm increasingly aware of the adoptee's voice and adult adoptees really shedding a lot of light on their own desire and longing to have had for better, better resources put toward permanency of their own bio families. Yeah. And so family preservation resources in our countries, rather than the tail end of we're so far into the system now, now we're kind of trying to rescue yes. the system, right? Yes. Or kids out of the system. And I know that the work you're currently doing is more on the other end of the spectrum, yeah. but that your history has really tapped all parts of the timeline of where kids leave families and come into families. And I'm curious, just from your expertise and your perspective and your learning, where you see the role of prevention it's critical. And, and yeah. it's something that I think um, across North America, we've, we've, if not ignored, we've at least minimized because we, we hear stories of, you know, uh, horrible abuse or horrible neglect yeah. of a child or the death of a child. And we all want to rush in and make sure that that doesn't happen to any child. But you're right. That's the back end. Um, the front end is we children deserve and belong in their families of origin. They deserve yeah. to be there and they belong there. Yeah. And we as communities must apply every effort and resource to make sure that families can be um, uh, resource rich, uh, full of um, support and connectedness so that they can raise families to the best of their ability and children can thrive in those families. Yeah. And it frequently issue, issues of poverty or um, lack of resources or unemployment or those kinds of things creep into uh, a child welfare system when it's really an entirely different conversation. How do we support families if this is an issue of poverty or this is yeah. an issue of, of a child not being able to get to school because uh, yeah. mom or dad can't, you know manage to find a way to get them to school or take a day right. off from work in order to help them get there. Yeah. So that gets conflagrated, unfortunately, in, into that neglect conversation, which can be critical for a child. Absolutely. Yeah. You want to make sure that children have all the, the human needs, food and shelter and safety in order to thrive. And if those don't exist, one, how can we support that family? Yes. If that doesn't work, if if that child remains unsafe or yeah. unable to thrive, then we can engage the child welfare system. But we miss that upfront piece by providing and helping with those resources and default too quickly, much too quickly to a child welfare system. Combined with that, of course, and again, across North America, 
we have a deep divide in terms of of racial equity yes, marginalized um, folks yeah and marginalized families yeah. and so we're we're quick to leap to this is what i believe is a viable family yeah. versus I understand the culture that I'm dealing with in a different way. And so there's certainly a long, horrible history in both countries yeah. about, yeah. about, you know, not taking care of, 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 of families of different, of different cultures in a way or respecting that culture in a way that again, or just stealing children out of those families yeah. that drove, you know, legacies of children into the child welfare system. So we have to grapple with both of those, but yeah. we certainly have to first default to prevention, not first default to removal. Thank you for that. I really appreciate that perspective. I, and I think we, we love simple answers. So we'd love to eradicate <laughs> yeah. uh, the system and we'd love to, to go in that direction when we really see and understand the grief that's involved when we can't avoid that system. But, you know, the reality is, is we are working today. We have a both and situation, Um, but it doesn't give us license to ignore change. So we're wanting to resource, right. To be able to grow that end of the spectrum rather than just say, well, it's too late. We're in it, right? Exactly. It's a both end. I appreciate exactly. that. Thank you. Um, and that, that very yeah. particular personal identity that children have, where they yeah. came from is their identity. And when we rip that away from them, we have to do it consciously. That's right. Well, and, you know, we won't probably get into this today, but there are so many um, in-between factors that we can do to support on yes. that continuum. So yes. how do we foster cultural growth you know, in families that they weren't prepared for, or how, you know, how do we, how do we keep kids connected to their bio family in an open, safe way, wherever possible? How do we remove the fear factors that a lot of adoptive families come into this and remove some of the myths around what they believe is going to be happening if they have to stay connected to birth family? So if we can do that work, that is all toward the, the avenue, right? Yeah. Yes. So when we, Talk about matching factors. I think about how complicated and um, I don't even know what the word is, but it provokes a lot of anxiety for adoptive families who are waiting, who are curious about how this is going to unfold. They don't have the magic eight ball that's going to tell them who their match will be. They know desperately they are longing to grow their family. Um, And I think there's a, a... two-sided piece to this agencies have responsibility to do really good practice around matching factors so they have the research end of it and then there's families experiences adoptive families who are trying to fill out forms and say what they feel capable of and what risk factors will we accept and it's so hard when you don't have a child to evaluate the match with you just have a concept right and you have a form to tick boxes off and it feels so heavy it's such a big responsibility not knowing what the outcome is going to be. So can you walk us through some of the things a program or an agency might be considering what they've learned along the way matters for a a solid match and maybe some of the things to identify what families go through? Sure. And and it is, it is an awesome responsibility on both sides of the coin uh, and one that no one uh, obviously can or should take lightly. You know, I'll start with families that are thinking about jumping into the foster care system, uh, the best and first thing to do is really do a a deep self-assessment 
what's good for me? What's good for my family? What is it that we can accommodate in terms of needs of a child, age, uh, number of siblings? Uh, and be brutally honest that yeah. indeed, I think people, we know from research that we do that people jump into the child welfare system to adopt, not only because they want to expand or, or create a family, but because they have a sense of altruism, that they want to help a child. Yeah. And so scrutinizing what about me wants to help this child? Is, mm-hmm. it, is it for me or is it for the child? And both are valid. But within that, um, Will I accept an older child? Am I interested in in bringing an adolescent into this family? Am I interested in bringing an infant into this family? Um, could I accommodate siblings? Because frequently someone will get into the foster care system and they'll find, oh, I, I'm, I'm quite attracted to the profile of this child, but that child also has a sibling. Am yes. I willing to, to bring siblings in together? Um, do I have the kind of supports around me that will accept a foster care child into my family? Does my extended family believe that this is a viable yeah, route for my family? That matters. Yeah, absolutely matters because if I feel like I'm going to get judgment or negative judgment from my 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 external sources, how much do I want to accommodate that? Um, yeah. Or the reverse is can I engage a robust network of support around me? Do I have access to the kind of resources and understand the kind of resources that it might take if I bring in a child that has experienced layers of trauma by being removed from their biological family? Absolutely. If they've moved multiple times while they've been in care, they've been in different schools, that all builds on a child's sense of security and self And it may not be evident at the first point of adoption, but it may surface Mm -hmm. later on. So do I understand that reaching out and asking for assistance, do I know where to reach out and ask for assistance, first of all? But is it, do I understand that it's okay to do that? That it's not a failure on my part, I would do the same for any child. Um, so really doing that, that internal scrutiny of what is it that, that I believe can be a, 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 a healthy and thriving approach to bringing a child from foster care into my family permanently. And that yeah. word permanently is critical. This yes. isn't a test. No, this isn't a, a trial. Um, a trial. <laughs> this great. is forever. Right. Yeah. And really, yeah. and, and it's okay if at any point in that self-assessment, I say, you know what? Not right now. Or this is exactly what I will, I, I, I couldn't possibly handle bringing a 16-year-old into my family. And so making sure that you're willing to be your own best advocate in talking with the agency and saying, here's what I need, here's what I want. I'll certainly stay open to conversations and to, yeah. to, to alternative conversations and options. But as of right now, this is what I need. And then the agents, from the agency point of view, really looking at families that step forward and making sure that they understand all of those things we just talked about, but in reverse, really. Um, Does the family understand that this is forever, that this is a permanent commitment? Do they understand um, that they they can and should um, be able to network out for resources, that they should be able to come back to us for questions, that they maintain an open relationship with us and understand that at times it gets frustrating. It can be very frustrating to deal with government systems. Mm -hmm. 
particularly now with workforce issues and phone calls and virtual communication. You know, is this, does this family appear to be willing to um, embark on this very complex journey with a government system and stay open and positive um, and willing to take education and advice and 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 create the kind of learning that's necessary and is this family willing to if it's at all possible keep connections with the child's biological family obviously at point of permanency it's up to the adoptive family to make that decision but it is frequently best for the child to maintain those biological connections even if the adoptive family feels insecure uncomfortable with that it's always about safety, of course, and it's always yeah. about the legal right of the adoptive family to make those yeah. decisions. But keeping an open mind to and a lack of judgment about the child's extended biological yes. family. Oh, so huge. So I think yeah. it's those kinds of, it's that balance between agency and potential adoptive family yeah. uh, of really creating a dance of, of how we interact with each other, of understanding each other. And, and we always tell families, if you don't feel comfortable with an agency, agency with whom you've connected um, for any reason, yeah. maybe make a pause, explore other agencies, you know, make yourself comfortable but, right. but stay open to the fact that the agency may be going through challenges of workforce issues or pandemic yeah. issues right. or, or something like that as well. Yeah. I, so, you know, I imagine the transparency of the conversation has to, has to be there between parents and, um, and the agency and how tricky that can feel. Mm-hmm. It's so vulnerable. Yes. Um, and I know a lot of parents when, when the authority piece and the, the, you know, that's removed. So if, if I'm as a, th- as a therapist meeting with um, prospective adoptive families, they will often say, I don't dare to bring up with my social worker mm-hmm. that I'm scared of that. Yeah. Or what if that, or if I make it too narrow, if I say, I, you know, if I'm too assertive about what I'm really comfortable with, are they going to rule me out for sure. options that, and, you know, I'm often asking people to practice language for how do you go back to the social worker and say, what you just told me, how do you make it safe enough to be able to say, I'm uncertain about the boundary here. Can you keep me in the loop, but please also know and have a realistic expectation that that's probably something I'll be uncomfortable with, but I still want you to know about it. And, you know, I, I think the weight of the pressure to say, I already know in advance of seeing a child or knowing or building a relationship with the child, what I can and cannot handle Mm -hmm. is an impossible question to really accurately nail down. Right? You can't be specific. So for parents to feel like it's okay to not know and to communicate that. And my hope is that agencies are really tuned in to how tricky and vulnerable that is so that they can be sensitive toward and non-judgmental toward people who are bringing those things up. Exactly. Because it's at the end of the day, both people are offering with most transparency and open communication, the best outcome for the child. It's not selfish to say, I don't think I can handle something. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Nor is it an admission of failure at all. In fact, we celebrate it when people are that honest uh, and have done that kind of scrutiny or, or have a, you know, sometimes it's a knee jerk reaction. And so you have to back up a little bit and and think about it. But ultimately, if that's the feeling in place, then yes, absolutely. We honor that. We have to honor that. Yes. Right. One of the things that you are so passionate about is dispelling myths. 
about fostering to adoption. So most of our episodes around adoption are through private sources. So not necessarily from a government agency or through foster care, which is why we were extra excited to have you on today because of your wealth of knowledge in this particular area. Can you tell us what some of the myths are out there that you hear that are common and and maybe knock a few down for us and take them out of the picture. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I was looking over at a sheet because I want to get this right. Every few years we do a a survey of American and Canadians attitudes toward foster care and foster care adoption. And some of the questions we get, we ask get at that um, some of the misperceptions that, that exist. And one of them is um, 53% of Canadians believe that if they attempt to adopt out of foster care, that at some point the birth parents will try to come back and claim that child. That's a, that's majority of parents, potential parents believe that. And so they self-select out of the process or they're very anxious in the process. And we want to make sure that people understand, and it's actually higher in the U S 76% of families believe that that, that was that high. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. This was about four years ago. We're due to have yeah. a, a new update on this. Yeah. Um, but but the reality is that these are final legal processes. When a child is available for adoption, the biological parents cannot ever contest it in court, come back and try and claim these children. Again, as we've already talked about, it may be best for the child to have continuing connections with extended family. But that's entirely up to the adoptive yeah, family, yeah. the bio families cannot come back and try to legally reclaim right. custody these and say, and okay, exactly, exactly. Okay. So that's the first one, I think. Okay. The second one is that it's much too expensive, right? It's much too expensive to adopt. And so I'm going to self select out again. I always um, am a little bit challenged talking about this because what I don't want to do is demean the worth of a child in foster care. Yeah, absolutely. But when you can, when you compare the cost of, for example, an international adoption or a private infant adoption, they can be much more expensive because there are, there are different fees for agencies and attorneys and transportation potentially and support of a birth family yes. or birth parent yeah. potentially. So that makes it an expensive financial endeavor to adopt out of foster care. Those fees, those, those costs are essentially covered by the custodial agency. Yeah. So although yes, it is expensive to raise children in either country these days. Yes. Yeah. That cost of adoption is minimized for children out of foster care. Yeah. So if someone is balancing um, the kinds of adoption and cost is a primary factor, that's something yeah. simply to consider. Um, yeah. The one that keeps me up, I will be honest with you at night, is this perception about who these children are. And again, I'm going to look at my sheet. Aww. At the last survey, 50% of Canadians believe yeah. that children are in foster care because they've done something wrong because they're juvenile delinquents. And it's about, it's still just about the same in the U S as well. So we bring cause from, from our misperception. We believe that the child is at fault. That's why they're in foster care. And so we have a lot of work to do there. Oh my goodness. And we do. Yeah. And that compounds when you look at, for example, a 16 year old black child in the child welfare system, Uh right? We already bring perhaps our own biases and misperceptions and assumptions about culture or about age or about gender. Um, and, And so we immediately say, well, that child is there because he or she deserves to be there when nothing 
Nothing could be farther from the no. truth. They're there through no fault of their own. Yeah. And so that's one of those biggest mistakes. And that's why children tend to age out of foster care too, because look, go to any gathering where people are talking about their teenagers at home and what happens to people's faces, uh-huh. right? They yeah. screw up and we roll our eyes. because <laughs> they're, they're teenagers. They're teenagers <laughs> yes. and we all have our stories about them. Uh-huh. So adolescents are difficult creatures to begin with yes. for the right reasons. It's a developmental yes. phase. That's right. But add to that layers of trauma, issues of abuse and neglect, issues of removal and and grief and loss. And we might have a challenging 16-year-old in the foster care system, but it's not because they've done something wrong. And so we have to get over that notion of who these children are and what they deserve. Um, They won't necessarily be fine if they just turn 18 or 21 and leave the system and they can pull themselves up by their bootstraps because they're survivors. We shouldn't put children in that position. Right. Indeed, many do fine, and they and and they do go on to become yeah, thriving adults. Because they have to. Yes. But right. because they have yes. to. But we shouldn't put them fair. in that position. Yeah. So those are some of those key misperceptions that we want to get over, that we want to work and make sure folks understand and appreciate and value the notion of childhood and the notion of vulnerability that children bring to the table and that yeah. they're not there um, because they're too expensive or because they're too old or because they're, they're, they've done something wrong. Um, they're there because someone has done harm to them, and our job is to make sure that they can be safe in a permanent family. Yeah, I, I'm glad that in another episode we're going to have uh, a social worker on talking from an agency, adoption agency, talking about post-adoptive support Yes. Because that I know that varies from province to province, state to state, potentially. But um, when you adopt from foster care, it, it you aren't it, it is not the same as private adoption in that sense either. That you do have some potential access to yes. a pot of money that will help navigate very specific resources that you might need. So if your child comes with high complex needs, there and there are resources available there's money that can be funneled to you as a result of post-adoptive support. And yeah, and that I I don't think a lot of people know that going in when they're first investigating the idea of, can I, should I, do I feel capable of adopting? And then which route do I take? I think, you know, at that stage of the game, most people don't know the the differences on the other side of actually permanence and which system you go through um, and what that can look like for families. Yes. And it can still be challenging, but I think it is the one uh, among many recognitions that governments have made that if we are going to um, make appropriate matches for these children and move them into permanent families, there is also a critical need for post-adoption resources. And so those dollars do yeah. flow. Again, is it always enough? Not necessarily. No, no. But in terms of healthcare and education and, and just yeah. daily support, it is there. Yeah. And I, I would encourage parents who are thinking about this or going this route to ask while you're in the waiting process. Yes. Don't wait to find out afterwards. If that's something you're curious about, it's okay to ask. What would this look like? What would be available if this child requires, a, you know, a heavy amount of learning support, for instance? Or, yeah. Absolutely, okay. because it is so yeah. complex and it does differ everywhere. That's a, it, it, that's an excellent point. Build yeah. your catalog of resources before uh, finalization. Uh, yeah. Make sure that that network of of helpful resources and individuals is at least you know next to you somewhere so that you know where yeah. to turn and you don't have to be scrambling um, at, at the last moment. 
Well, and you know, the whole realm of parenting period is unpredictable. Then we add these other layers of unpredictable systems to parenting um, and the potential of becoming families this way. And it leaves us often feeling like we have very little control Mm -hmm. over anything. And I think that level of anxiety throughout a long period of time for some waiting families builds and accumulates and it becomes really hard to identify anymore what we can advocate for and what we can ask for and what we can create some amount of maybe not certainty, but clarity around ahead of time. And so empowering people to ask the right questions throughout the journey and, and not feeling like this has been done to them without their consent or feeling like we were really well informed or we knew what we were getting into wherever possible, ask the clarifying questions ahead of time. Exactly. And not to put it in in terribly simplistic terms, but when we're looking for any uh, major change in our life, we tend to do the deep research, right? We go to consumer reports or we go here, we go there. We do that deep research. It should not be any different or, or, or laden with any kind of judgment in particular when it comes to creating or expanding a family. Amazing. I'm going to link in all the resources from your agency into the show notes because I'd love families to follow up and find out more about how, if they are in Canada or the U.S., looking for uh, adoption perspectives across the country around how to how do I envelop a foster child into our home, um, what role your agency might play actually in helping facilitate that. I'm so encouraged by the numbers that you shared um, and that I read a bit about in your introduction to just uh, the amount of efforts and resources that have been put in to do this in a quality, quality way. And I would love people to make use of that and not feel that they have to go this alone. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much, Rita. It is my pleasure. And and we're delighted to continue to answer questions that anyone has. um, And just appreciate the time with you today to talk about this. Thank you. Have a great rest of your week. Thank you. You too. If you are planning to adopt or early in the process of having adopted and you are in a couple relationships, so you're co-parenting, without going into all the details here, I just wanted to uh, encourage you to check out the show notes. There is a link there to a course that I've created specifically with you in mind. It's called Adoption, What to Do While You Wait. And um, it is 10 modules that are adoption specific, but also couple relationship specific. It helps you walk through conflict resolution skills, concept of how to have really strong, uh, positive regard for one another, how to be attuned to needs both for each other and to balance parenthood and also toward your children and what their complex needs might be. So if you are in that boat and curious for more information, click on the link in the show notes and uh, check it out. I know from experience that those things that we cover in that course really do matter for the health and well-being of your family going forward. And we just want to give you the best chance for permanency, for success, for connection, for thriving at the end of the day um, with every part of your adoption triad in mind. So uh, check it out and I hope you have a great rest of your week.